This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Ah, hello everybody. This is, this is me. <laughs> Uh, this is where you find me online, and if you're old school, send me an email. I like emails <laughs> more than Facebook messages, because somehow as an orderly German, there's more where you know you can organize them, put them in folders, and like, ah, uh, Facebook messages are just a big mess. Okay. Um, I make a little confession. I'm a little bit nervous, but... Um, should I at any point get entangled in a word salad, you know, uh, that I can't uh, get out of immediately and you get confused, then just look at my slides because the visuals are really good. <laughs> <laughs> and the content is sound. I worked on it for a while. So don't get distracted by my delivery, but I do my best. Um, there's this little icon in the bottom of the slide um, and it will come up on some slides where it means like take a photo of this slide because I'm not going to talk much about it But if you want to research more there's goodness in it to uh, consume later Alrighty Whew, Let's do this I'm a visual thinker and I'm a designer and pen and paper is my favorite thinking tool in my time as a UX designer I have drawn a lot of boxes I have drawn a lot of arrows, some more boxes and some more arrows. These are just some of them. <laughs> and you might recognize this type of sketching for figuring out user flows, for figuring out interaction design, interfaces, layouts, all this kind of good stuff. Um, of course, I don't only sketch on my own. I also sketch with other people, for other people, and with other people. And then I also make other people sketch, and especially people who say, I can't draw. You know, like um, product managers and developers, engineers, sometimes researchers, sometimes other designers who are not very, um, who like computers more than they like pens and they are kind of got scared over time to actually pick up a pen that exists. Um, but uh, you can ease people in and, um, and once you get going, it is actually a great way of having a conversation and teasing out different information and different requirements and different assumptions that you not necessarily get to um, when you just use words and language. Um, about 10 years ago, I also started um, sketching in a different way, not for developing um, designs, but for capturing um, uh, talks and conferences I went to. Um, you see the p lovely people here in the front who do the live visual recording. This is kind of a similar thing, but in a small format in a notebook, not everybody looking over your shoulder freaking you out. So. Um, uh, this is now called sketch notes. At the time when I did that, this word um, was just emerging or didn't exist, and now everybody knows it. It's cool. There are books about it. Um, and these conferences, um, I started doing that because my memory is really crap. I have to write things down. Otherwise, after two days, it's like, there was this great guy who gave this great talk about this great topic. Oh, and I forgot all of it, but it was wonderful. Um, so I do this, and to engage myself a bit more, to actually look at my notes, I mix words and images, because otherwise I would never go through pages and pages of text, right? Um, and the topics, they reach from really, you know, creative stuff and design conferences, up to things like when I was invited to a DevOps conference. Anybody knows what DevOps is? Yeah, I do now. Um, <laughs> and I actually got paid for that gig. 
And I sat there and understood nothing, and I'm like, damn, I better get sketching because they pay me money. Um, the funny thing about this is um, that there is something that I call structural listening, and even if you don't understand the content of each node by listening to how people present things, um, you can listen what the structure is and just reflect that back. And there were quite a few speakers coming to me afterwards and saying, thank you, now I have an A4 summary of my talk, this is really awesome, this is so good, and I'm like, I have no idea what you talked about, but I'm glad it helps you. <laughs> uh, three years ago, I took a sabbatical, um, we quit our jobs, left our flat, sold our belongings, and uh, went traveling around the world for 14 months. And I applied the same idea of sketchnoting to my travel diary. Um, so during the day, I collected the small moments um, that I was interested in, the people I talked to, the food that we tried, the things, that, the things we've seen, the ideas that I had. Um, and then I sat down for about one to two hours a day and um, drew a double spread every day. Uh, this is from uh, Siem Reap. Uh, in Cambodia, amazing temples in Angkor Wat. This is the closest I got to Australia. This is from New Zealand. Uh, much more nature-based, cute little bunnies, rainbows, clouds. Who can't be happy in this country? Um, but a lot of my sketches are not that elaborate or well-rendered or, you know, like intricate or finished. A lot of my sketches and drawings look like these. Um, they are kind of, they are thinking sketches. They, they are me in the moment trying to figure something out with a stream of consciousness or a stream of thoughts going through my head that I maybe not quite have figured out. Um, or I do these sketches as well once I have figured it out. I sketch this for people while talking about it and explaining things, sometimes getting new ideas while I explain. So these are actually the sketches that I'm really excited about and interested in. So these are sketches as a tool of, for, for thought and a tool of communication. And in this one, the sketch itself is just the reminder of the thought process or the reminder of the conversation that we had. Um, so the product is not that important, but the process, what happened while I was doing it and what happened because I was using visuals as a tool to help me structure my thinking as I went, is the interesting thing. And also these, are, these sketches, they are intertwined with language, either language chatter in my own head or, <laughs> or me talking over them while I draw them. Uh, which brings me to the topic of my talk. Um, very fancy topic. I called it visual literacy and visual fluency. I hope I never have to give this talk in German because I have no idea how to translate these two words into German. <laughs> I don't know. I'll figure it out one day. I'll draw it. Okay, so <laughs> definitions first. What is literacy? Um, of course, I borrowed that from the, uh, from the world of, uh, of language and writing, right? So literacy, literacy generally, is the ability to read and write. When I talk about visual literacy, I mean the ability to understand and create visuals in some way, shape, or form. And fluency is kind of one level up. Think Super Mario, you know, level up. <laughs> uh, and it's the ability to express oneself easily and articulately um, in a visual way when we talk about it visually. Um, otherwise, just in a word way when it's just fluency. Um, and this uh, actually means that we get so comfortable with this mode of expression, and we're very comfortable with, with talking and writing, so that actually the tool itself goes into the background and we have more space for the thought itself and the content. So the tool goes away and we can express ourselves fluently. 
and this is when we really thrive and, and, and when it comes, uh, becomes beautiful. So like when you're learning a language, for example, in the beginning you think about, oh, what's the ending of this verb, you know, and how do I structure the sentence and, and things like that. Um, but when you get fluent in it, then you can actually talk about what you want to talk about, or you can even make jokes. That's the best moment when you speak a language well enough that people actually laugh about your jokes and not at you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, so where are we as a society in terms of um, being vit visual visually literate or visually fluent? <laughs> um, good. Um, we are really, um, we're experts in, in, at consuming visuals. We consume them every day and they help us get around the world, like when we want to get somewhere at the airport, uh, we know where to go. When we're in the airport, uh, in the airport, in the airplane, we know what to do in a case of emergency. Uh, it helps us more or less <laughs> to put our stuff uh, together when we move house and finally uh, find a flat again. Um, it helps us to understand complex topics like climate change or space exploration. Um, and computers and interfaces themselves are one big freaking metaphor, the desktop or the icons, the trash can, all this kind of stuff. So we are dealing with uh, visuals and consuming visuals and using them for orientation and navigation all the time. Uh, and also in communication, there has been a surge in uh, people actually using visuals to communicate. So emojis, um, first on the, on the old phones, you know, just with um, colon, um, dash, uh, parentheses. Uh, and now we have actually emojis and also even one, one step further, animated GIFs and stickers and things like that um, used extensively. Um, and even, you know, like up to Snapchat filters and, um, uh, and Instagram filters. Thanks for copying that. Um, so we, we, get, we got really visual in our communication. Um, the problem uh, with that is, though, that all of, this, all of this communication that we do visually, most of it is basically selecting from a predefined canon of things. I have an, a range of emojis and, and I can choose from them. Or I have a range of filters um, and I can say, yeah, I'm vomiting rainbows, that's beautiful. But some other concepts I might not be able to express because somebody else has not pre-produced the visual or the filter for it. And when we ask people to express their ideas freely and say, oh, then just draw it for me or, you know, make it, and they're like, <sighs> this can get really scary. I've been teaching sketching and visualization and things like that for many years now. And even people uh, I w that are otherwise confident, it can really terrify and block them and go like, oh, I can't draw and like, <sighs> like this. <laughs> not with these sounds necessarily, but internally, you know. And why is that? Um, it is partly, in my opinion, because in our society, we still look at sketching and drawing as either something that children do, and all children do it, and it's great, and at some point they stop doing it, because the other, the other accepted um, group of people drawing is people who have talent and who are highly trained, who are either artists or maybe architects, maybe um, designers. Um, so you either have two chances, you're a child or you're a pro at it, but everything in between, nobody thinks about drawing and sketching and they're like, I have no talent. But actually, let me break the news to you, there is a huge space in between. 
There's space for all kinds of sketches, for ugly ones and for beautiful ones, for naive ones and sophisticated ones, for good ones, bad ones, for, for, for conceptual ones and for practical ones. There is a lot of space in there. And I want to encourage you to fill that freaking space because what do you do with space? You fill it. Um, I want to make the analogy to um, learning how to write because learning how to sketch for me is very similar. It is an act of communication. Um, if we saw writing the same way that we look at drawing, we would teach our children to write and then we say, yeah, now that you know how to write, you are only allowed to write really high quality literature, Shakespeare style plays, good poems, you know, great works. Something like a shopping list? No, that's way too mundane. What do you dare using writing for a shopping list? Um, but that's what happens with, uh, with, with drawing, I think. Um, and, and, and there's actually a lot of space between Shakespeare and shopping list. Um, so this is uh, when we start communicating, because it's all about communicating, uh, drawing for me, when I talk about drawing and sketching, it, I talk about it as an act of thinking and an act of communication. So when we start communicating, um, the first thing that we do is use our bodies. That's why here we have a body. Um, and the second thing that we learn, we learn how to speak. In my case, I learned to speak German because I'm German. That's why there's the German word for apple. Um, and, uh, and a few years later, when we go to school, um, we learn how to write which is great because it extends our, our world from being able to just communicate one-to-one -one in a situation to actually being able to communicate over the barriers of, uh, of time and space because we can keep it and we can send it somewhere. Um, and I actually see uh, drawing just as a third layer that complements these other two ways we communicate or three ways when, if we count our body as well. Um, and, and it's appropriate as, as, as a complementary tool. And in some cases, it, cases it is more appropriate um, for, for certain things that I want to communicate. And in some, uh, in some cases, words are stronger. And I want to actually look at this relationship. And in my opinion, words and images are two best friends. They shouldn't be separated. Both have their own strength, and together they are a dynamic duel. They're like Batman and Robin. They're like, I don't know, Bonnie and Clyde, what is your favorite power couple? Um, I don't know, um, Beyonce and who's, Jay-Z, no? I don't know, well, whatever, but you choose your power couple. They're two best friends and we shouldn't separate them. We should, um, we should have them play together. So let's look at some of these strengths. Um, visuals are great because they are quite robust. We are really good at looking at stuff and figuring out what it is, like evolution. <laughs> um, and it's, we were super quick and super good at doing that. Um, and I ju just want to do a little test with you. Um, I'm gonna show you some images and you just shout out what you see. There's no, second, there's no second degree layer of complication. It is like as simple as that. All right, let's do this together. Ready to shout? Thank you. That was great. See how quick that was, how easy that was. Even conditions got quite bad at the end, you know, like um, it got blurry and it got grainy and um, rain came down and the world ended and stuff. 
So it's really robust. It's, a, it's something that we have in us um, that we can work with. Um, and that is also the reason why little visuals are great to make a page scannable because we're so quick um, at seeing images, recognizing them, and also recognizing their meaning. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no wonder um, when you do eye tracking studies, you know, the eyes are drawn to the images, and also that we use icons for orientation and things like that. If you're interested, um, that's an interesting study about how quick we actually are at concept recognition is like with each, uh, with each eye fixation. Take a picture of that, Google detect meaning in RSVP, and you will find a study that you can read and dive into. Ah, sorry. Take a picture now. <laughs> okay, next one. See, when I do this, I should actually give you time to take a picture. <laughs> you live and learn. Um, and the second thing that visuals are great at, and this is where I get really excited about because, uh, because that is so good, it's to show relationships, and that is so relevant for our work. Um, we are actually, we are three-dimensional creatures. We walk through this world, and what we do every day, all the time, is we interpret um, the information that comes in through our eyes, so visuals, um, and evaluate the relationship of what we see has with us. You know, how far are things away? Can I reach them? How fast is this bus approaching? Can I still cross the street? Is this person looking really angry? who's coming at me, is he bigger or smaller, you know? We assess the relationship with the, with the visual input that we get with us all the time. So we're really good at that, like evaluating spatial relationships and size relationships. And we are also, funny enough, very good at translating this spatial uh, relationships into quite abstract relationships um, that can be mapped spatially and we, we get it. So this is pretty one-to-one, -one. maps are great, you know, if I want to know where to go and where to turn and how to get to uh, the library or whatever this is, um, using a map. Uh, this is a spatial mapping of a spatial um, problem that is still pretty one-to-one. -one. Or like floor plans, you know, makes it easy to quickly evaluate the overall layout, the overall size of the rooms, okay, I like it, I don't like it, need more space, don't like the kitchen next to the bathroom or whatever. Um, but then, also, we can uh, map time relationships on a spatial two-dimensional layer as well. And it becomes super easy for us to kind of interpret the length as, uh, the, 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 the spatial length as length of time. We can see relative which phase takes how long, which phases overlap, what needs to be happening at the same time. Where are the cutoff points or where are the milestones? Um, organizational relationships, hierarchical relationships, you know, who's, who, who's who's boss, who's in which team, who works together on things. It is super easy for us to, to grasp and see, although it's a conceptual relationship mapped spatially. Um, and conceptual relationships, which animals are related to which, when did they branch out, which kind of traits do they have in common, um, it's uh, easy for us to, to understand when it's laid out in a, in a two-dimensional space. Functional relationships. How do things work together? Which things are connected? Where are the nodes? What, are the, what is the periphery? Which things are, are one group? Um, and, and how do they operate together? And we don't have to get very complicated in the visuals that we do. Like, if we just use basic shapes, sizes, and uh, spaci uh, spaces, and connections, um, we, can, we can understand a lot. Like, it's easy for us to see which place is the furthest away, although there are no houses, there are no maps, you know, it's pretty abstract. 
Which group meets regularly out of the two? Which relationship is the strongest? We probably can answer all the questions for you. Even if it gets a little bit more interpretive, who's older? Who has no friends? <laughs> Which process do you follow at work? <laughs> or even more interpretive, like who's tired? We have kind of an idea about it. We have an opinion. Um, and even this one, where, where it gets even more amb amb ambiguous, you know, who's the most creative? I don't know, but we have, a, we have a hunch. If it's wrong or right and what creative is, that's another debate, but um, uh, even if it's ambiguous, we, um, it communicates um, something that we can feel when we look at it. Um, and sometimes ambiguity is maybe a problem because um, some things need to be clarified, especially when you're German like me. I learned a lot in the last presentation. It was excellent, by the way, for Um So let's get, um, so if you can't live with ambiguity, then that's great to bring friend number two in the, the, the words, because words are great when you need specifics and details and data and be precise and German about the stuff. You know, all these visual things like, oh, creative or blobs or whatever. No, 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 no. Get to the point. So let's get back uh, to our map that we had in the beginning. This is kind of good enough to kind of know, oh, I have to turn right or left and maybe, maybe roughly see how far, um, how far the distance is. But this becomes much more robust. I want to add some words to it. Also, it goes from being a, a generic any kind of town to being a specific place. Um, and, and words are, it, it would be really hard to kind of draw that this is a town hall and the way to Nottingham and the bus station and stuff like that. Words are really quick to get to the point and add some specifics. Um, similar is true for this. This gives me a good overall idea of the relationships of the rooms and if I like the layout. But if I want to figure out of the so if the sofa that I bought actually fits into the space, I need specifics, I need language, I need words, or in this case, numbers. So, so when I add language and specifics, um, it, it turns the overall concept and relationship into something actionable because it is specific. Um, this as well, this is the other example of the, of the categories of the different um, animals and, and how they relate to each other. When we actually want to talk about it and the information architects in the room, if some are left, they can maybe relate to this. Um, sometimes it is great to label things and to categorize things because you can group things together and have kind of one word that, that holds a whole concept. For labeling, um, categorizing and naming language is amazing. I don't know, like trying to draw the concept of vertebrates or uh, ancestral protista. I don't know how to approach it. Language is a really good tool for that. Um, just this is fun because this is one of, uh, this is uh, an original drawing from one of Charles Darwin's notebooks. He was a visual thinker as well. He drew this uh, kind of concept um, uh, and then described it later in words in the following pages. I just thought that was fun. Okay, strength number two for the, for, for the words. Um, they, they are specific, but they are also very good for framing and for giving context. And as we learned in Farai's um, presentation, context is really important um, because um, it gives us the possibility to understand a certain message uh, when we know where it sits. And, um, 
uh, and what else is involved in understanding it. So words are great for very quick and simple framing, especially when, if you want to frame something in time and space, because especially time is a very abstract concept and trying to draw time, okay, I mean, you can draw a clock, but that's not really drawing time. It's, uh, it's quite hard, so um, language can help you out there. Uh, quick example, a picture of a cup steaming, something hot in there, probably. Um, this can mean a lot of things, uh, but I can help uh, kind of guide the meaning of what you see in there when I put a label to it. So if I say 7.30 a.m., you probably have certain ideas what that is, as opposed to Sunday afternoon. Or in space, you know, if I'm in Milano and I have this, compared to London, maybe there are other things that I interpret about this cup. And I can also, not even time and space, but I can also label concepts on top of it. When I write medicine underneath it, uh, the whole connotation uh, becomes different and it can take on a different meaning. Um, or talking about fair trade, I mean, you could put any label and see how it shifts um, what meaning um, this picture actually holds. It's nice to play with. It's really nice to play with this relationship. So here we have our two best friends. Um, and they are both really strong, and together, they, uh, they are amazing. Um, to summarize, um, visuals, they are really, really fast, but only kind of approximate and often ambiguous. Also, ambiguous is not only bad, ambiguous can be also really good. Sometimes in our society, ambiguous is, is, has a negative connotation. But ambiguity holds space for possibilities. As soon as you take away the ambiguity, things are decided, you move forward, you are in production, but the design process in itself needs, uh, needs a space where ambiguity can live so ideas can develop. Um, and words, they are slower, so if you want people to slow down, then you write things, because then they have to slow down and read it. Um, but they are more accurate and precise. And depending on what you want to communicate and who to and how and what you want people to do, you can use these, in, it's, it's about creating a balance between words and images. So this is your opportu photo opportunity, I'm not going into that, but um, this is going a little bit deeper into the, into the things that you might want to take into consideration when choosing the balance between words and images, um, the different strengths. Everybody took their photo? Three, two, one. Awesome. We continue. So, I hinted at it, I made the analogy with language. I love analogies, metaphors in general, um, because they help me think through a, through, uh, some, through a problem or through a system um, with the help of a system I already know. So, um, I called it visual language. Hint, it's like a language. So, let's look at language. Um, the smallest unit of, let's talk about written language, of written language is um, letters, you know, these are these shapes that have a sound, and um, there's something similar, like basic shapes that you can use, um, and when you put letters together, or when you put these shapes together, ta-da, you can make words, awesome. <laughs> so, uh, smaller parts put together, like Lego, you know, little bricks, different, uh, different arrangements, different objects. Um, of course, you, like, you can take words and put words together to make more complex expressions. Maybe having uh, a good idea. You can do that in different ways. This is the Facebook way. <laughs> having a good idea or a bad idea. Or having an idea in the first place. And you can put several expressions together to make sentences. 
having the idea to build a house. Or having the idea to build a tree house. You see, it's modular. You can kind of nest these things and add on to it and add complexity and take away complexity. Um, and of course, when you put many sentences together, you can build whole stories. You get the idea. It's kind of a modular system. Um, and uh, that when we get deeper into it, there are even more deeper concepts that we could get into. Really interesting, like grammar, you know, the rules around that. Style, everybody speaks with a different style. My speaking style, very different from Farai's speaking style. Um, onomatope, um, which is in the German uh, translation of the word in German is painting with sound, where the sound of the word actually represents what the word means. In French, the word for whispering is chuchoter. Um, rhetoric, how do I make a good visual argument? Really interesting to kind of dive into, and of course, metaphors. I just want to go back to the, to the sound painting, the onomatope, because I, I love that. Um, so, just an example. This is, you know, the, the convention when we read comics, you know, this is a speech bubble, and this can be filled with the content of what people are saying, but we can also be, uh, express how people are saying something. This is kind of saying it. This is a German speaking, making a statement. <laughs> we can be a bit more aggressive and louder and shout. Or we can even speak without speaking, which is called thinking, just in my head. And this one I made up, but it looks like I'm speaking after five pints or something, I don't know. Um, so we can use conventions, but we can also start, you know, making it up as we go along because um, a bit of ambiguity um, is all right. And when we use um, visuals and, and, and words together, um, they become really powerful, pun intended. I love bad puns, here we go. They become really powerful. Um, and I just want to give a, a few examples of how they can be powerful. First of all, this is one of my uh, favorite ones. They give an overview. You know, instead of having a long report and it's all linear and you have to read it, it's all on one page. Um, at least when you try it, it's, it's quite hard to put everything onto one page, but it, it forces you to kind of give an overview. And this is great because I have a hard time kind of remembering things in a very linear structure. I want to see everything at once and then I can kind of relax and say, okay, everything is here and now I can look at each thing individually and try to understand it. I want to give you a little example and I'm gonna tell you a story about two teenagers, you might have heard about them, um, who madly fall in love, uh, who meet each other at a party and madly fall in love instantly, love at first sight. Um, what they don't realize at the time is that they're actually part of two opposing families who have been in a bitter feud for a very long time, many, many years. This is a problem for their love. But them being teenagers, even after they learn that this is a problem and that, that there's a family feud and they are from the different families, what do they do? Yes, they go and get married in secret anyway. Great. Um, this is not only a problem because of the family, si family situation, because also of this guy, his name is Paris. He is a family friend of the Capulets, and he has been promised Julia's hand in, married when the, in marriage when she is old enough in a few years. So the next day after the secret marriage, nobody knows about it, um, Romeo and his be best buddy Mercutio, they are out and about, and they meet Tybalt, who is actually the cousin of Juliet. Um, Tybalt is still pissed at Romeo because he crashed the party the other day where he met Juliet. 
um, and he challenges him to a duel. But Romeo is in a pickle because now he's technically related to Tybalt. Nobody knows, but hey, he married Juliet and his cousin. So he refuses, but Mercutio takes up the offer for the, for the duel. They start to fight. Tybalt kills Mercutio. Romeo tries to intervene, but he's too late and enraged that uh, Tybalt killed his friend, uh, he kills Tybalt. Of course, this fight doesn't go unnoticed and the prince of Verona actually decides that he bans Romeo, he has to go into exile and leave town forever for life. This is a big problem. Also, uh, Juliet's father, after all this drama and things, he decides now it's time uh, to be an adult. Um, oh, this is a side story, I don't want to talk about it. He <laughs> Well, they are all cousins, make of it what you want. I didn't understand what that, it's just a little complication. So Romeo's, uh, Juliet's father, Juliet's father decides um, the girl has to get married now. So he sets the wedding day for just three days later, which puts Juliet into a real problem. So she has to be quick and she devises a secret plan um, to go and join uh, Romeo in exile, which uh, involves faking her own death by drinking fake poison, which is actually a potent sleeping potion. And when everybody thinks she's dead, she will secretly go and live with Romeo. Um, unfortunately, the message about the secret plan actually never arrives um, with Romeo because the Wi-Fi is down. And, uh, but he hears of Juliet's death um, and he is so heartbroken that he wants to take his own life, but before that he wants to go to the morgue and see uh, the, the, his wife a last time. He goes there and bumps into Paris, who's actually mourning his fiancée. Um, they get into a fight, Romeo kills Paris. Afterwards he goes and sees Juliet, lies down next to her apparently lifeless body, drinks some poison that he uh, bought earlier and kills himself. After a few hours, Juliet uh, actually awakes after the fake uh, poison has worn off. Um, and when she realizes that uh, Romeo's lying dead next to her, she is heartbroken and kills herself with his dagger. By now, almost everybody's dead. <laughs> the few survivors of the scene, they come, the two parents, they are, um, they are shocked and heartbroken that their children are dead. And just to add to the grief, Montague announces that his wife, Lady Montague, was so heartbroken over the fact that Romeo had to go into exile that she actually died of a broken heart. So they finally realize too many people have died. <laughs> this craziness has to stop. So they decide to stop the war between the families and in its place they erect a golden statue of the two lovers to remind us for all eternity that love should win over hate. The end. So all of this, this really helps me to remember the story. It's quite a long story and of course there's more detail, but this kind of diagram starts to reveal kind of the structure and helps me to fill in the gaps um, with, my, uh, with what's left of my memory. And um, it is really helpful um, also because we can reveal a little bit more of the structure and then talk about who dies and how do they die and what's the dynamic of killing. So it's, it's kind of uh, like a whole bundle of relationships that we can show. Um, and the other thing that um, visuals are really great is, is that they reveal patterns. Um, some patterns you saw revealed in the Romeo and Juliet story, but the best example for um, pattern revealing uh, with visuals is probably data visualization. So th this is a little table of numbers of imports and exports of a nation um, over almost a century. 
and it's very precise. You can see the precise amounts, but it's really hard to see what's going on, right? It's like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it going up? Is it going down? What do we do? Well, now what we do, yeah, we just make a freaking graph. <laughs> no, no brainer. So imports, exports, okay, imports pretty stable, around 100K, exports go up and then explode. Um, we can also fill in the gaps um, that were like information that was not there in the table. Um, and say, and interpret it and say balance against, balance in favor of the nation, more imports than exports, more exports than imports. Anybody recognizes this graphic? This is actually one of the first line charts ever made by a man called William Playfair in the late 1700s. He's, um, he was a pioneer in data visualization, and today it seems banal to kind of just plot stuff as a line graph, but this stuff is um, not even 250 years old. So. Um, that is quite amazing. And the cool thing when we start visualizing this stuff is that we can start seeing things. We can start seeing what is happening. So we can see trends. Does it go up or down? We can see turning points. Where does it start changing direction? Um, we can see thresholds. Thresholds are always interesting. When does it go over a certain limit? Or when do exports overtake imports? Um, I have to cheat a little bit. So I manipulated the curve to show you a phenomenon which is not in this graph. Um, we can show outliers and an anomalies. That is always very interesting, like spikes and troughs in a graph. Um, so this is all we, we can show what is happening. But, and this is interesting in itself, but it is especially interesting because when we see what is happening, it enables us to ask why is that happening? So we can start asking questions about why is there a trough or a peak? Um, and make some correlations um, with other events uh, and other data. Um, and we can add interpretation. What does it mean when exports are higher than imports or the other way around? So we can actually use the mere data and turn it into understanding and interpretation, which is great. Which is what we want, right? We want understanding. Um, and, it, and, uh, and a few other things that I won't go into detail about photo opportunity coming up. Um, visuals can make things more memorable. You should Google picture superior superiority effect and dual coding theory. Nick. Okay. And visuals can make things more engaging. There's almost nothing more powerful than being able to point at something. Oh, I mean that, but not that. Or, oh, look, something is missing there. And this is great when you visualize stuff. Um, and it can even make things more persuasive. And if you're interested in that, there's a study, Google Whiteboard Persuasive Storytelling. It's the work of Zachary Tomala from the Stanford Graduate School. Um, there's a lot more research needed, but it's an interesting little insight uh, into persuasion and visuals. So, and last but not least, closing. Um, it is very versatile. I just want to, once you get fluent in a language, you can, you can start making jokes, you can talk about anything, and the same is true with visuals. And I just want to show you some examples about that I do. So when I read books, I take notes, not only at conferences, but when I read books. Um, actually, the books that I read look like this. And I really appreciate having a lot of large margins. Most books don't have large enough margins for my way of reading. Um, I, I draw when I think about things. This is thinking about clarity. This is a precursor to one of the graphics that I showed you in the beginning, this thinking sketch. Um, I think when I prepare talks, you might recognize some of the content of this presentation because that was my preparation um, on a beach in India. 
Um, I, I, I draw when I um, prepare courses. This was for a course that I taught, a week-long course at my former university, so planning out the week and, and, and the distribution of the material. Then I make myself little cheat sheets for the day of teaching where I kind of have the exercises and all like a little bit visualized so it is nice and short and easy to just glance and know where I am and what I need to do. Um, I sketch when I um, uh, plan projects with clients for timelines and kind of figuring out when what needs to happen when. Um, and I also apply it to my personal life. Uh, I love yoga. I did a yoga teacher training and I took notes in a visual way. I actually took it as far as kind of writing a little book about how to sketch yoga sequences um, because it's actually a really simple thing to do, but lots of yoga teachers don't know how to do it. So you can kind of um, plan your sequences and have a little cheat sheet next to your mat when you're practicing on your own or when you're traveling, really handy. Um, I do theater improvisation and, uh, well, I sketch there as well, so it's endless. It, it can really be applied to lots of areas. And I just want to close with one of my visual heroes whose graphic design work I really like. His name is Saul Bass. He said, um, design is thinking made visual, and that's true, but I'm just changing it a little bit and say sketching is thinking made visual. And it is super important because our world is complex. Our design problems getting more complex. It's not about designing screens anymore. It's about designing complex systems and designing relationships between technology and people, between different teams, between different services. Um, and as we saw, visualizing stuff is great for thinking and showing relationships. So um, I challenge you to up your visual fluency and, and really get there. And um, if you don't know how, you should have come to my workshop, but because hindsight, <laughs> hindsight is a bitch, um, I made something for you, and of course it's not like a full workshop, but it's a little thing, yeah, take a picture. Um, which is, if you just want to start really mildly to just become, a, get a little bit more visual when you take notes at meetings or when you plan projects and timelines, um, this might help you out. So with that, I say thank you for listening. I have one minute for questions. Yeah, let's, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it might take a minute to ask the question and, and, and a lot more than that to answer it. Um, so thank you. Thanks, Eva Lotta. Um, grab her during the break. Grab Farai during the break um, if you want to talk more about those things. Um, and yeah, the, the, the workshop's a good one for next time. So please join me in thanking Eva Lotta. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.